One of the great things about being a pastor is that I get to be one of the first people generally to hear about people's experience with Jesus. And it turns out that everyone has a different story. Each of us encounters the gospel in different ways, and we react to it differently. I have known people who were, in their own words, the last person that you would think would ever become a Christian. I've known people who have found Jesus in jail, known people who have been enmeshed in false belief system all their lives, only to have their eyes open. I've known people who have come to faith in Jesus because of faithful parents. I know of people who have come to faith in Jesus because someone who did not believe in Jesus witnessed about Jesus to them. Go figure. I've known people who have come to faith because of a faithful Sunday school teacher who made the gospel warm and inviting. Recently, I've talked with some people who grew up in church but didn't get it until, of all things, they were isolated during the pandemic and started reading the Bible for themselves and fell in love with Jesus when they found him there. We all have different paths that get us to Jesus. And for the variety of paths, there's one thing that all of our stories must have in common. There's one thing that must be part of everyone's experience if they want to be Christian. There is one thing that unites all of us in our Christian experience. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that one thing is. It's my hope that as you read the Scripture with me this morning and as you listen, that you'll figure it out. I don't intend to obscure it, but I just don't intend to tell you straight up either. So... There you go. So, let's read then. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. Let's begin reading Matthew chapter 9. I'll start in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went away, and spread his fame throughout all the district. It's a funny thing. These blind men, who lived centuries ago, on the other side of the globe, experienced what you and I must experience if we are to be Christian. They 
followed Jesus as he passed by. And they cried aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And so here we have two blind men. I want you to think about them for a moment. Think about what life would have been like a couple thousand years ago if you were blind. The first and probably most obvious thing is that the world was not built to be ADA accessible. If you've ever been to an old city, if you've ever been to, to ruins or visit somewhere um, that was several hundred years old, you'll know that some steps are like this tall and some steps are this tall and there's no railings over here and every little cobblestone is crooked and it would be awful to be a blind person in that world. But not just that. They didn't have computer programs that could assist them to, to somehow do coding or make their way around the internet or figure out how they're going to make a living. There was no way to make a living if you were blind. So these two men, if they were anything, they were impoverished. And because they couldn't work and were impoverished, everyone would easily identify them as cursed by God. Everyone would easily say, yes, God's against them. In fact, that's the question that, uh, that Jesus had to feal at a different time when he healed the blind man. Who sinned, this man or his parents? I mean, they're cursed because of their sin. That's what everyone thought. And then because they're cursed, see, it just keeps getting worse. They're outcasts. And everybody ignores them or shuns them. The best they can do is sit on the side of the road and beg until, of course, Jesus walks along. And then they can follow him. Now, the interesting thing about these two blind men is that they saw some things pretty clearly. Because they rightly identified who Jesus is. It's been important to Matthew to tell us the labels that people use uh, to engage with Jesus. There have been some, of pe some people who have called him teacher. There have been other people who have called him Lord. He called himself the Son of Man. It was the demons who, seem oddly, were the most clear about who Jesus was when they called him the Son of God. And so Matthew's kind of played with these names for Jesus. And here we have these blind men who see very clearly that Jesus is the Son of David. They call him the son of David. And that's about as clear as they could be about who Jesus is. That he is the Messiah. They knew exactly who they were calling on. Exactly who they were hoping for. And so they called 
Have mercy on us, son of David. To call Jesus the son of David is to um, tie him tightly to the promise that God had made David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God had promised David when he made him king that he was going to uh, make him a great, uh, give him a great throne and it's going to last forever and his descendants will sit on the throne. Here, this is how it sounds in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers and I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so to say, son of David, is to say, you are that king. You are the king who will rule forever. Not a surprise, since we've seen that all the way through Matthew, right? But it's really even more than that. To call Jesus the son of David is to, to plant a clear signpost that points to the fact that he is not just the king who will reign, but he is Israel's savior and Messiah. To call him the son of David uh, connects him again to the glorious promises that God had given um, to Israel's Messiah. In the, book of, in the prophecy of Isaiah, he tells us about the descendant of David. Now, I generally try not to just jump all around in the Bible and, and stick to what I'm talking about, but I'm just going to say this is too good not to read. So if you'll indulge me, that's really what it will be, an indulgement, because I, I will enjoy it and I hope you will too. This is from Isaiah chapter 11. And it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, the, just to be clear, to make sure that this is clear, Jesse was David's father. And so, once Jesse had died, there was going to be a shoot that comes up from that stump. Okay? That's probably all you need to know right now. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth 
shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. This root of Jesse, this son of David, is going to bring about one day peace throughout all the earth, not just between warring nations or peoples, but even among all the animals. This sense of peace and shalom that he will bring will, will be just unimaginable to us. And so these blind men, these blind men say, hey, son of David, over here. And they, they say, I know you. I know who you are and what you can do, you see. That's what these men are saying in their description, son of David. This son of David is also the way that Jesus identifies himself. In the end, when uh, you might say he writes the conclusion to the entire Bible, Jesus uses this moniker in description of himself. He says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. That's what the book of Revelation is. Then Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus himself wants to be known the way that these blind men identify him. That he is the king of kings that He is Israel's Messiah and Savior, that He will bring about the peace that we all long for. This this Jesus, this Son of David. And so these blind men do something that most people fail to do. And that is that they properly identify Jesus. Everyone who comes to Jesus must come to Him for who He is, not for who they make Him up to be. It's very easy to make Jesus up to be something we want Him to be. We want to make Him up to be like us. We want to make Him up to like the things we like, to let us off the hook when we you know, uh, want to do things we know we shouldn't do. And so we make up this Jesus that fits us more comfortably, but not these blind men. He said, Son of David, Messiah, King, one who will bring peace. Over here. Over here. Have mercy on us. And that, actually, interestingly, is their request. Have mercy on us. I'm just going to say that's not what I would have asked. Groping in the darkness trying to hear the shuffling of the sandals into the house, I certainly would have been saying something about, I'm over here, can you help me with my problems? They said, just have mercy on us. Mercy throws us back to the Beatitudes, the, these characteristics of the kingdom. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And it did make me wonder, why did these blind men not ask for their sight. What was it 
that, that informed their prayer request. Have mercy on us. Well, there are only two places in, uh, in the Bible where that prayer request is uttered. There are only two places in the entire Old Testament that have that language that they would have borrowed to say, Son of David, have mercy on us. The first place where they would have uh, borrowed this prayer request has to do with sin. It's in in uh, the book of Psalms. Both of these are in the book of Psalms. But Psalm 51 starts off this way. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I promise you, these blind men, who I'm sure felt every bit of the curse that everyone thought that they should feel, as outcasts, impoverished, hopeless, their sin, I'm sure, was ever before them. And so, it would only be natural to go ahead and confess it and say, have mercy on me, son of David. But then, the other place that this prayer request is mentioned in the Old Testament is Psalm 123. And it's interesting that Psalm 123 doesn't have to do so much with sin as it does with seeing. So these blind men apparently see things that seeing people can't. Psalm 123 starts like this. This would not be your prayer, I imagine, if you were blind. It says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. Now here are these blind men. See very clearly that their hope is in this son of David. And so, even in their blindness, they look to him. And so what you and I can see from these two men who can't see is that hope is not hope just because you conjure it up. Faith is not faith simply because you muster some good ideas. Rather, you must, must, must know who it is that you trust. You can't trust Jesus if you don't know who He is. That's 
what we learn from these men. That's what we have in common with these men. Now, that's, that's what happens outside the house. Then they move inside the house. In verse 28, it says, When they entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. So they affirmed that Jesus is the Messiah. They asked him for mercy, and then nothing happened. Jesus didn't say anything to them in the street. And it wasn't until they followed him into the house that Jesus finally engaged them. Now, I just want you to stop and think about this for a minute. I mean, how unusual is this? What if this were your house? What if you were out working in the front yard, right? And you decide that it's time to go in and get a glass of water. And you go in, get a glass of water, and then all of a sudden, people follow you in. You'd probably have a different question for them than Jesus had for these men, wouldn't you? What did Jesus ask them? Jesus said, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Jesus had heard that they had affirmed, yes, they'd said the right words in the street. Jesus wanted to know for sure, do they really believe? Let's drill down and see if it's really true. And so he asked them the question really that he would ask us today, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is able? But what is this? Do you believe I'm able to do this, Jesus said? And nobody ever said what this is. I imagine that this is the thing that they always wanted. This, this was the thing that they desperately needed. And as soon as they expressed their belief, Jesus met their need. He touched their eyes and they could see. And that's all there was to it. I mean, that's all there was to it. The end. Right? All of a sudden they could see. Now, I I hope this causes us to stop and recognize, first of all, who Jesus is, and second of all, what Jesus can do. Because when they affirmed that Jesus is the king who sits on David's throne, that he is the Messiah who will bring peace throughout the whole world, that he will be the suffering servant that was long prophesied the Messiah, when they affirmed that, it's no surprise that that person could actually help them. I mean, think it, that's, that's what I want you to see. When you get Jesus for who he really is, Of course he can help you. When you make up Jesus to be something that you thought he might be or that you want him to be, that's no good to you. Only is it good to you if Jesus is who he says he is. 
And so they affirmed the right thing. Jesus asked about their faith, and then he healed them. And when he healed them, Jesus acted just like they thought he would because of who he was. In Isaiah chapter 42, there's a glorious prophecy about the suffering servant. And God says to the servant, he says, I am Yahweh, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in the darkness. And so here you have Jesus acting just like the Scriptures revealed Him to be to be the Messiah, to be the one who gives sight to the blind. And so this gets us pretty close to the point. Pretty close to the point that you and I must also experience along with these blind men. And so the story poses a question for us. Who is Jesus? No, I mean, really, who is Jesus? Because the correlator to that question is, then what can he do? Who is Jesus and what can he do? And that is what we must get to. That's the one thing that we must have in common with them. We have to get clear on who Jesus is. Because the point is not how great your faith is, or even how weak it is. The question is not, do you have enough faith? The question, rather, is who is your faith in? And who is He? When these guys understood Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the King, to be the one who brings peace and healing, then it only makes sense for him to do Messiah-type, king-type, healing-type things. Any less would be beneath him. So if Jesus is who they believed him to be, then curing blindness was easy for him. If Jesus is who the Old Testament Scriptures pro proclaimed Him to be, why wouldn't they believe that He could do this? I want you to just realize this about the nature of faith. The nature of faith is not that you don't have enough or that you uh, can't find it or something. The, the point of faith is who are you trusting? If you don't know Jesus, you can't trust Him. That's what it means to be a person of faith. To be a person of faith is to know Jesus, and then of course, the only natural response is to trust Him. And so, the closer you get to Jesus the easier it is to trust Him. 
That's what you're supposed to see here with these blind men. That's what was supposed to come out of him healing, uh, casting out demons or healing the women uh, or raising the young girl. All of these things are meant for you to see in the Scripture who Jesus is. And if for some reason you read those things and you say, pshaw, I can't believe that. He can't be that. I want to remind you of what I said earlier. I want to remind you of the willing ascent that Jesus made to the cross. That God testified of His love for you because Jesus willingly went to the cross. I want to remind you that after that cross there is an empty tomb that is the, the heart of the good news for those who believe in Jesus. And then if Jesus can die to take away sin, and if He can rise again so that God fully accepts His sacrifice for your sin, I mean, why would you not trust Him? But if that's not enough, I mean, if all these miracles don't convince you to trust Jesus, if His death and resurrection don't convince you to trust Jesus, you need to know that He's ascended on high at the right hand of God, and He is now making intercession for you. He loves you, and He is, he is praying for you even this moment. In other words, the more you know about Jesus, the more you will trust Him. The closer you draw to Jesus, the easier faith will be. So, this is the question that every person who wants to be a Christian must answer. That is, do you know Jesus well enough to trust Him? Do you trust Jesus for who He really is? These blind men did. And they saw things more clearly than many of us do. Well, then Jesus moves outside the house. And their eyes were open, it says, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. Verses 30 and 31. Just like that. Easy, you might say, for Jesus. He touches them, and they can see. And then, and then Jesus tells them, shh, don't tell anyone. Now, I want you to, if you look carefully at verse 30, it's, 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 quite ironic. There are two things in there that are very interesting. One is that Jesus says, shh, see that you don't tell anyone. He could have said that any number of ways, couldn't he? But Jesus is looking at them. They're looking back at him for the very first time. And he says, see that you don't tell anyone. But he didn't say it like I just said it, right? I just smiled and said it because I thought it's cool. But it says, Jesus sternly warned them. 
Jesus sternly warned them. Now, I suspect that you've had these kind of warnings. Probably not from Jesus, but from your mom. Right? This, this is like the mom look. Jesus giving you. See that you tell no one. I want this as quiet as can be. Now, why would Jesus, why would Jesus want this to be a secret? Right? That just kind of goes cross-grain with everything we know about Jesus. Well, like, everybody ought to know about Jesus. In fact, he, you know, he told us to tell people, and we feel guilty when we don't. And here he says, don't tell people. What is going on with this? See that no one knows. Why is Jesus intent on keeping a secret? Well, I think the clue is earlier in the text when it says that Jesus went into the house and they followed him, and then Jesus talked to them. He didn't talk to them in the street. He didn't talk to them in public because had Jesus touched their eyes and healed them in public, people would have completely misunderstood. Because I told you, right? I told you that Jesus, we, we have to trust Jesus for who He is, not for, we who, for who we think He should be or who we want Him to be. But see, they wanted him to be somebody. They wanted him to be this political Messiah that would overthrow Rome. That's what they wanted. And so had he done this in the street, they would have, people would have come right in and said, oh, you're the one, because they knew the Scriptures, right? They knew that this suffering servant, this Messiah, would open the eyes of the blind. They knew that. But they had a different view of him. They didn't believe him for who he was, but for who they wanted him to be. And so I think that's why Jesus tells them at the end, warns them sternly, don't tell anyone. I want you to know, Jesus did this over and over. This was kind of a theme because Jesus wasn't ready for people to be misunderstood. Jesus really wanted people to get clear on who he was, which is the point. In chapter 12, he tells people not to make him known. Again in verse 16, tell no one that he was the Christ. Again in verse 17, said until the Son of Man has raised from the dead, don't tell anyone. But, not surprisingly, it's hard to keep a secret when you were blind and now you can see it's kind of hard to keep that secret. And in the end, you need to know it keeps, it, it causes Jesus some problems. Uh, in, uh, Matthew doesn't record it this way, but in Mark, um, Jesus heals uh, a leper. And he says, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the cleansing that Moses commanded for proof to them. But, says this leper, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. I mean, we think, oh, poor Jesus, he didn't have a place to lay his head. Oh, poor Jesus, he didn't have anything. He didn't have anything because he couldn't be in town, because people couldn't stop talking about him. And so he had to go out in the wilderness and camp and hope to make it harder for people to get out there. So it set Jesus back that they told anyway, but let me just say, when you see Jesus for who He is, and you believe Him for who He is, and He acts like who He is, it's 
pretty hard to keep a secret. And so if you haven't figured it out yet, here it is. Here's the one thing that we must have in common with these blind men. All of us must get to know Jesus enough to trust Him. We can only trust Him as far as we know Him. The more you know Him, the easier it is to trust Him. In the, entire, the, the entirety of your Christian experience boils down to that one thing. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Him to be who He said He was? Do you trust Him to do what He said He's going to do? That's the entirety of the Christian life. And that's why you do the things that you do to stay Christian or to be Christian so that they help you trust Him. That's why you read your Bible. You don't read your Bible to get religious information. You read your Bible because it helps you trust Jesus. You go to life group because those people help you walk with Jesus and trust Jesus. You come to Sunday gatherings because we talk about Jesus and hopefully it helps you trust Him. You listen to podcasts or sermons or any other thing, read books. There's only one reason you do that. So that you see Jesus clearly enough that you can trust Him. And that's what creates faith. Knowing who Jesus is creates faith. There is no other way to get it. You don't live a Christian life by trying harder. You don't get more faith by trying harder. You get more faith by seeing Jesus more clearly. The more clearly you see Jesus, the more you will trust Him. And so that is then the question to end all questions. Do you know Jesus well enough to trust Him? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank You for this encouraging uh, recount uh, of these two men who had an idea about who Jesus was that matched how He revealed Himself to be so that He acted on their behalf. And Father, I just pray for each one of us. Don't let us dabble in stuff that doesn't matter. Father, would you use the things that we do and the things that we go through and people that are around us to help us see more clearly who Jesus is so that we might trust him more fully. Well, thank you for your help to that end. In the name of Jesus, amen.